biology. 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 Hello and welcome back to another episode of the HSC Biology Podcast. Today we're continuing the dot point, investigate the various mechanisms used by organisms to maintain their internal environment within tolerance limits. And specifically, we're looking at the mechanisms in plants that allow water balance to be maintained. So just as a human needs to maintain homeostasis, in a similar way, a plant needs to maintain water balance, but their ranges can change depending on what they need. So the temperature, the humidity, uh, rainfall and water availability will all affect how much water the plant actually needs. And so they will regulate uh, what they need using a few different mechanisms. So the first thing you need to understand with plants regulating water is that the water moves through the plant through transpiration. Now you might have done transpiration in year 11 and that would be the transpiration adhesion cohesion tension theory if you've learned that. Um, and the idea is that water is drawn up the plant through the xylem vessels. And the way it occurs is that evaporation will occur at the top of the plant near the leaves and in the leaves. And that will cause a suction that will basically pull the water from the roots up the plant. Now, because of water's properties, it will stick to the side of the xylem. And it will also stick to the other water molecules. And this creates like a chain. And so I always explain it like a giant straw. Imagine when you're drinking from the top of the straw, the water at the bottom is being pulled up just as it is in a tree. So the evaporation is causing that suction or that tension and it's pulling on those water molecules to be drawn up from the base. So the xylem is an important vessel that regulates the flow of water. Now secondly, uh, there are many mechanisms to control water moving in and out of a plant. Their availability of nutrients, um, so the rates of osmosis in the plant, will certainly affect that. But we're going to talk about some more specific adaptations that it may use. So some things that it uses physically to change the amount of water that it will lose are things like thick, waxy cuticles. Now that's the outside or the top part of a leaf, and you would have seen if you've ever picked up a leaf, the top side looks very shiny and the underside looks very rough. Um, and that's because that shiny side has the job of reflecting light. Now in Australia, we obviously have a lot of light and that means that we have to have, you know, leaves that are quite shiny that are able to survive in that heat and temperature. So that minimizes their exposure to light and heat and therefore decreases their rate of transpiration and the evaporation of that water in the plants. Now, a few other properties that leaves have here in Australia, we have some leaves that have tiny white hairs on them. And again, that uh, allows the sun to be reflected, minimizing that exposure and decreasing the temperature, therefore allowing it to regulate water better. One great example that I always give is the orientation of the eucalyptus leaves. And you can usually see this when you look outside, if you're at a school with one of these trees, the eucalyptus leaves will hang vertically, pointing downwards. And again, you may have done this in year 11, but they will point vertically downwards. So when the sun is at its highest point during the day, which is also when it's going to be at its hottest, the leaves have the least amount of surface area exposed to that light and therefore once again reduce temperature and reduce the rate of transpiration, regulating water a bit more efficiently. So there's some structural features of a plant that allow water balance to be maintained. But the dot point more specifically is asking for mechanisms. So basically something that is going to happen in response. 
And so what's going to happen in response to a change in temperature or a change in light availability is that usually the plants will regulate the opening and closing of their stomata. Now, if you can remember from year 11, they did this in a few different ways. First of all, if the plant has too much water, the guard cells, the cells that sit on either side of the stomata, will basically swell up and open. And so when the plant has too much water, it will open those guard cells and water will then be allowed to evaporate out of the plant, reducing the amount of water that it has. Now, if there's not much water, the guard cells will shrink. And that's because the vacuoles inside them will shrink and that will close the stomata, thus minimizing water loss. And so when the plant doesn't have much water, it will close its stomata to stop that from happening. But there is one problem. When the temperature gets too high, the plant will have to make a choice whether or not it's sacrificing some of its water or it's going to basically sacrifice itself. And so the opening and closing of stomata, although usually regulated by water balance inside the plant, can also be regulated by a few different mechanisms. Now, the first one is that plants can actually control the time of day when they open and close those stomata. And in the 2019 HSC, the suggested answer actually went into details about the particular hormone that regulates the opening and closing of those stomata. And so I will read out the answer now from the 2019 paper because I think it just summarizes this dot point perfectly and gives you a great example. So it says plants can control movement of water out of the leaf to keep a stable internal environment with respect to water by altering the size and opening of the stomates. The opening and closing is under hormonal control. For example, abscisic acid, A-B-S-C-I-S-I-C, abscisic acid, is a stress hormone produced by plants when internal water is low, causing stomata to close, thus reducing water loss. So that's a really nice summary of everything I think they'd be expecting for this dot point as a specific example. More likely, they're going to give you a stimulus and ask you to respond. Um, as they've already asked that question pretty much directly. Uh, but yeah, there's some good examples of structural adaptations and also physiological processes that allow a plant to maintain water balance. All right, we're now on to the next inquiry question, which is do non-infectious diseases cause more deaths than infectious diseases? Now, upon doing some research, the answer to that question is yes, they do. According to our world in data, Around 73% of all global deaths are caused by non-infectious diseases, whereas only 18% are caused by infectious. Uh, the remaining are made up by injuries. So that's you know a pretty significant number. So non-infectious diseases are obviously very prevalent and they have a very large impact on the world. So the dot point we're looking at is investigate the causes and effects of non-infectious diseases in humans, including but not limited to genetic diseases, diseases caused by environmental exposure, nutritional diseases, and cancer. Now with this one, I think it's a very specific dot point where you just need examples. And so it does say causes and effects, plurals, and it also says genetic diseases, diseases caused by the environment, and nutritional diseases. So make sure you have two for each as a minimum. Now in terms of genetic diseases, we've actually gone through quite a few of the genetic diseases already. One great example is sickle cell anemia, caused by a change in a single base, and the effects are that the individual will have a sickle-shaped red blood cell, 
which means the hemoglobin inside has all clumped together. It is a malformed protein, and therefore they have an inability to carry oxygen around the blood, and therefore some of their functions are inhibited. The other genetic disease you can do is Down syndrome. And Down syndrome, again, we have spoken about this, is caused by three copies of chromosome 21. And this happens when there is non-random segregation of chromosomes during gamete formation. So, you know, one of the gametes gets two copies, uh, which isn't what you want. And when it's combined with the egg or the sperm, whichever one has a single copy, you'll obviously have three copies. Now, some of the effects of Down syndrome include the characteristic facial features, small flattened skull, short nose, almond eyes, skin folds on the eyes, intellectual and physical disabilities, and heart defects. So again, just knowing a couple examples for each one is what's going to get you through this, and that's why I always try and give examples that link across multiple dot points so you can cover your tracks if you need to. Now let's talk about diseases caused by environmental exposure. And the first one I'm going to mention isn't one that we've done before, and that's atherosclerosis. Now this is something that is basically caused by a lack of exercise, um, excessive alcohol or poor diet. So some causes there. The effects is going to be a buildup of plaque in the arteries. And that's going to lead to things like ischemic heart disease, um, blockages, blood clots, strokes and heart attacks. The second one we're going to do is asbestosis. And this can be caused by asbestos in the environment. And the inhalation of those fibers, those tiny asbestos fibers, basically cause inflammation in the lungs. Now the effects of asbestosis is going to be the hardening of the lung tissue, which is basically going to make breathing much more difficult. You're going to have shortness of breath, likely to have a persistent cough and chest pain. So they're two examples of environmental diseases. So the next one is nutritional diseases. And there are many that you can give for this one, uh, but two that I often give, which are pretty easy to explain, are scurvy. And most kids have heard of scurvy because they think of pirates. Um, and that's caused by a lack of vitamin C. And that would happen on pirate ships because they didn't have fresh fruit or vegetables. And this was not good because it actually led to poor wound healing. So if you got a cut or a graze, it wouldn't heal properly, which on a boat is probably not a great idea. You would also get things like bleeding gums and your bones that actually wouldn't grow or heal properly. So pretty significant there, but scurvy is a good one. The next one is a common one in today's society, and that's obesity. And obesity is a disease that has a very large heading and many factors that affect it. But overall, it's basically just consuming more kilojoules than the energy that is expended. So eating too much. Um, and the way they consider that someone is obese is that you have a BMI over around 30. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good measure because we have people and people are many different heights and weights as you would have learnt in year 11. Variation is extremely important in survival and so it doesn't always meet the criteria. Some people are considered obese but might be very very healthy so just be aware of that. Now some effects of obesity are things like increased blood pressure. And then once again, we have atherosclerosis. So we have a bit of a crossover there. And then the other one is type 2 diabetes. And type 2 diabetes is another good example of a disease caused by overeating and poor diet. So you can use that as an example too. Just be careful that you don't use type 1 diabetes. Sometimes kids often use that here. Um, they get a bit mixed up, but that fits in the genetic disease category. Um, and they have asked questions around diabetes before too. Now, in terms of cancer, 
the two that I picked for this one are skin cancers and melanoma because that's a pretty common one that students know about in Australia and that's caused by exposure to radiation such as UV light but can also be caused by tanning beds. The effects of melanoma are the same as most cancer effects is that it is uncontrolled cell growth. Now the real issue is if it gets into the bloodstream or the lymph glands um, and can lead to tumors. When there is a tumor it's going to prevent the normal functioning of major organs and that can eventually lead to death. The next one we're going to look at is lung cancer and that links well with what we do later on with looking at epidemiology and certain studies around minimizing the effects of lung cancer and that's caused by the inhalation of smoke from cigarettes. Again, most students know this one, and the effects is going to be things like difficulty breathing and then tumors forming. And so once again, the uncontrolled cell growth, the definition of cancer, is going to occur, leading to the same factors. So most students can write about that one. So they're the examples I use for the non-infectious diseases and each of those categories. And I will put a summary of those up on the HSC Biology Facebook page, so make sure you check them out if you want a summary. So the next stop point underneath that inquiry question is collect and represent data to show the incidence, prevalence, and mortality rates of non-infectious diseases, for example, nutritional diseases and diseases caused by environmental exposure. Now with this stop point, a collect and represent data it's unlikely they're going to get you to draw what you've collected and represented uh, in school. That would be very difficult. So you couldn't be expected to remember an entire graph or an entire table. So most likely they're using this dot point to make sure that you know how to interpret data, uh, to read from tables and graphs, but also how to draw the appropriate graph given the information that you have. Now continuing to look at the dot point that says the incidence, prevalence and mortality rates, I did go through in a previous episode the definitions of incidence, prevalence and mortality and there's a great diagram on the HSC Biology Facebook page that shows you how to understand each one. But just a quick recap, the incidence is the number of new cases, the prevalence is the total amount of people with the disease and mortality is those that have died from the disease. Now when you're looking at this one, again, it's all about interpreting, drawing, and understanding. So I think for this one, making sure you do practice your skills of reading, interpreting graphs, and also drawing them is the most appropriate thing to do here. I actually don't have any content to give you specifically, but I will upload a worksheet to the Facebook page if you want to check that out for some additional resources. Alright guys, I hope you enjoyed that today and as always make sure you check out STEM Reactor at stemreactor.com.au for anything you need related to biotechnology in schools. That's stemreactor.com.au and if you'd like to help support the show and buy me a coffee, you can head on over to buymeacoffee.com slash hscbiologypod. Alright, see you later.